I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar magazine. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Another week, another tech company making headlines for being naughty. This time it's WeWork, which after a failed bid to go public, got a huge bailout from an investor amid disclosures that its CEO, Adam Newman, basically used the company as a personal investment fund. The company looks less profitable by the day. And yet, thanks to this bailout, Adam Newman is walking away with billions of dollars. Sound familiar? Sounds a little like Uber, right? Just like WeWork, Uber was a unicorn startup, lavishly funded and poised to take its place in the tech pantheon. Just like Adam Newman, Uber CEO Travis Kalanick was ousted by investors and made millions in the offing. All this made headlines in 2017, but not everything was made public. Now, award-winning New York Times technology correspondent Mike Isaac is back with the whole story. His new book, Super Pumped, goes behind the scenes of how Uber came to symbolize everything that has gone wrong with Silicon Valley. And might still be going wrong, to be honest, given the news about WeWork. His book goes into devastating detail from the beginning. Everything from Uber's lavish, drug-laced parties where sexual harassment and assault were rampant, to the dubious business practices of some of its overseas offices. By the end of Super Pumped, Mike Isaac leaves you with some pretty uncomfortable feelings. Maybe the idolatry of startup founders does more harm than good. Maybe disruption just means breaking the law and convincing the government you should get away with it. Maybe we haven't quite learned our lesson yet when it comes to shiny new tech tools. Mike Isaac joins us in the studio to take us inside Uber while it was rising and as it was falling. Thanks for talking to me, Mike. Thanks for having me. So it's been a couple of weeks since your book came out. Mm-hmm. What kind of reception have you gotten from Uber or from like the other tech companies? <laughs> I mean, I know like the press have lauded you, of course, but what about the tech companies? Um, Uber has been sort of cautious around it. I think actually it's funny. One of my sources sent me a, a recording of like an internal meeting they had the other day and they had... Um, uh, someone they do these in the valley. They do these like weekly uh, all hands, right? And all the employees can just sort of ask whatever is on their minds. And one of these employees said, "You know, how do we get ahead of Mike Isaac's book?" Which I thought was funny. And the um, the head of comms was basically like, 
look, you can't get ahead of the past, right? You can't get ahead of all this stuff. And what Mike did is hire a fact checker from The New Yorker and the book is like largely accurate. So like we can't just sort of go out and say he's wrong or whatever because he's not, which I thought was like a mature way of handling it, you know? And, and I think they're trying, Uber in particular is just trying to be like, all right, we're moving forward. We're a different company, blah, blah, blah. That said, like some employees have... uh our ex-employees have not been super happy and uh, are just sort of leaving anonymous one-star trashy reviews on Amazon or like trading like pirated copies or whatever. So it's kind of annoying. It's funny that you mention Uber 2.0 um, mm-hmm. because it seems like Uber has had many iterations, you know. Yeah. It's easy to forget today how Uber started. What they did in the very beginning is quite different from what they do now with like Uber Eats and Uber Scooters and even the current ride-sharing model. Yeah, I don't think people remember the first version of Uber. I mean, basically it was called Uber Cab back in the day. It was not supposed to be this sort of peer-to-peer thing. It was um, essentially conceived by this guy, Garrett Camp, because he couldn't find rides around San Francisco, right? What it was originally was like a black car service, but um, sort of predicated on the iPhone. And, you know, back then the iPhone was this novel thing and you could like uh, all these apps were being created that did all this stuff for the first time that was never really connected to the phone. So he so Camp just sort of said, what if I could call a car with my iPhone and and look like I mean, almost verbatim, look like a baller doing it because a limousine would show up and pick me up. And that was basically it. Only he got this other guy, Travis Kalanick, to come and run it. Um, and they initially were basically a high-end car service for venture capitalists and rich techies in the Bay Area. And only probably a few years in, after they saw other competitors like um, Sidecar and eventually Lyft uh, go into um, peer-to-peer, which is basically like anyone who has a car um, and can pass like a rudimentary background check, can drive. That was when they moved into that in like 2012 or so. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the seeds of its like later misbehavior, all of those labor violations, mm. the broken transportation laws, sort of the company culture, do you think that was baked into the company at the beginning when it was still Uber Cab? Yeah, totally. I mean, in the in the beginning of the book, um, one of the things I talk about is they're they're not technically even allowed to call themselves Uber Cab because they weren't a licensed taxi service. And just from the very start, like their whole thing was not lawful, right? Like early on, they get a um, cease and desist notice from San Francisco because they're basically like, look, you're operating in unlicensed taxi service without really even you know trying to like pretend that you're legitimate so you need to stop or we're going to start fining you per every car on the road or something just sort of like insane fees that they could never pay travis's response was essentially to say you know okay we'll take cab out of our name but we're not stopping for a second right they could just keep going right and like that was the calculus from the beginning i think i I think the other thing and i've said this before but this one uber employee told me the law is not what's written, it's what is enforced. And if you take however many zillion rides they're doing per day, there's no way that the government can actually enforce, like, pulling people over or whatever. So their approach was just blitzkrieg, just push through, and it kind of worked. Yeah. Well, I mean, half the story you tell is really the story of Kalanick. I mean, there's no real way to separate the two, it seems like. Yeah. 
he's very clearly a special kind of jerk. And I think that's <laughs> that's putting it mildly. Right. Um, but a crucial observation of your book is that it's not like he was born in a vacuum. Mm. You know, there is this cult of the founder, which mm. treats these tech CEOs like saviors. And I'm not terribly surprised to see that they themselves think of themselves as saviors. But like, why would anyone else treat them like kings? I mean, look, if you go back to Steve Jobs mm-hmm. and like, really, it sounds kind of trite at this point, but every founder really had this fixation on being this guy, essentially this white male, usually that like can come and be this incredible showman and have these very large, like world changing aspirations. It's not just that you're going to build a new company or build a startup. It's that you're going to build something that can put a dent in the universe is what Steve Jobs used to say. And so if you want to say there's like a spectrum of where founders fall, right? I think let's say Steve Jobs or maybe even Mark Zuckerberg before 2016, um, before his image fell greatly, um, might be on the very far end of the spectrum where maybe you're building something good or big or whatever. And then I think Travis Kalanick probably goes on the other end of it where it's where it's that he might be building something big or powerful but can also go wildly, spectacularly wrong when sort of given all the power in, in the wrong circumstances. Do you feel like tech journalists are sort of implicated in perpetuating yep. the myth of the founder, the myth of the company? Yeah. Oh, no, totally. I mean, I, I had to even look back on this, like, uh, my own work and, like, how tech was covered for the past, let's say, 10 years or whatever. I think it's been a marked shift in how people look at tech and how journalists look at tech uh, over the past two years, let's say. you. I mean, we could talk about TechLash and how Facebook and Google and all these companies are just going through it right now. I think that it's been societal. Like, I think that's just a very large sort of mindset uh, shift. Um, but I do think that we probably should have gone harder earlier on on a lot of different companies, including Uber. Um, for a long time, though, I think coverage from the top down did not treat tech with the appropriate amount of scrutiny given the overwhelming power that it has over shaping the world, right? Like, especially Facebook. And there's been, like, almost no regulation over any of these companies. So to, to sort of, like, allow that power to spread unfettered for as long as it has seems kind of crazy in retrospect, right? But I, I still think that the view for uh, how we treat tech, how we treat founders, how we treat um, innovation has been looking at these um, like young men in hoodies in their dorm rooms uh, programming the next billion dollar app while like eating a bowl of ramen or something, right? It's just very kind of a sexy idea of, okay, you too can be uh, a founder, a millionaire, whatever, and and these guys are changing the world, but also are unlikely heroes. Sure, okay, but also you have to treat that with the appropriate amount of scrutiny. And I also think that, like, probably now more than ever, is you can create an incredible amount of change in a very short amount of time with even a low amount of overhead. Right? Like Uber was, Uber created a network out of nothing and turn the taxi industry on its head in like a matter of years, basically. So on the one hand, I do sort of look back and and wonder about coverage. On the other hand, it all has happened very quickly. And so there's been like a sort of whiplash around how we treat it, you know, from like uh, spectacle and whiz bang sort of whiz kids creating apps to, whoa, the center of power is shifting completely. So much of what you're saying really raises the question of who exactly is benefiting from all of this because the founders you know 
it's almost like you say it with a capital F. They yeah. see themselves Founder, as founder. right. They see themselves <laughs> as putting a dent in the universe, as yeah. you said, or like as you put it in the book. They create software companies to improve our lives while simultaneously wresting power away from lazy elites. <laughs> but I mean, with Uber drivers going on strike for living wages, and now the gig economy pervasive, and with I think some pretty notable flaws. Yeah an Airbnb driving up rents in already expensive cities. I mean, whose lives are being improved by these companies? No, I mean, and that's the sort of grand irony of a lot of this. I think I do think that early 50s, 60s, 70s, like it was sort of a countercultural, um, maybe subversive act to be like, okay, we're creating software to, and I think they believe it, we're creating software or companies to um, change the world or to disrupt like entrenched competitors and in the case of Uber like taxis are corrupt and the government is in bed with them and like these systems work against how things should should work so that you sort of go into it thinking that this is the fight that you're making and then at some point you become <laughs> you become the person that's in power right you mm-hmm. beca- and I think this is Uber never really fully internalized this they still thought they were whatever, redistributing wealth or or giving people, empowering people to work on their own schedules or, you know, giving them more economic opportunity. But like Uber takes 20 to 30 percent of every ride and then they've shifted all of the, you know, liability and expenses and costs onto the drivers themselves. And um, over time, I think they're going to probably take even more money or, you know, just because they have a lot of pressure to make a profit. Like, it's going to just cost more and more. And so I think you can just see a lot of different worker protections being eroded, a lot of just the idea that we're standing up for the little guy just seems to go away the more you dig into their business model. And eventually they are the ones that um, get to this place of being the elites, especially when the IPO comes and everyone can start selling their shares. And there's going to be a lot of millionaires, right? So like, Who's taking power away from the elites here versus who's just about to get very rich? Yeah. And one of the other unique things about Uber, beyond the extensive lawbreaking, is how quickly it slammed into the real world. You know, if you compare it to other tech companies like Facebook, Facebook was just this cute app where you poked your friends and posted photos. And and it was really only in the lead up to the 2016 election that it was criticized for Mm. having an impact on politics or the material world. But from the very beginning, Uber did have an impact on yeah. traffic, on the way laws were enforced, on how people got around. And as a consequence of operating in the material world, of operating with cars, which are kind of inherently dangerous, mm-hmm. there is what seems like an unprecedented amount of violence in the book. I mean, that's the, that's the, I think the, I mean, you touch on something exactly right, which is like once you, if you sort of parachute into socioeconomic and cultural um, environments that you have no experience in and really can change almost immediately, like crazy stuff could happen, right? I think in the book, and we were talking about this before, but like when I was doing the research, like there was so much violence that I had no idea about even because it just never sort of came out before in the press. And um, I talk about Brazil, right? So Brazil was like, you know, Brazil was in, in particular was going through a huge recession still is sort of like dealing with, you know, record unemployment and, you know, crime is skyrocketing in certain areas. And Uber just finds this amazing growth area in Brazil. So they're just dumping resources into like moving into Brazil as quickly as possible. 
And what what it creates is this really interesting dynamic where so in Brazil there's or in some cities is very cash cash based you know less um, Uber is all about give you a credit card and having a seamless experience but they had to um, they had to experiment with drivers carrying cash because people pay in cash and uh, so what people would do is sign up for the service um, and Uber in order to grow as quickly as possible would not put any like identity checks or real serious identity checks around people sign riders signing up so criminals essentially sign up with a fake name or fake, fake phone number call a car to come pick them up uh, get in the car rob the driver of all his cash or steal his car kill the driver and just repeat that basically and it was um it was there were at least that I found like 16 different drivers that were murdered using a version of this method before Uber decided to put some more identity checks into the service but they knew that this problem was happening and and didn't fix it for some time so it's it's just things like that where you crash both figuratively and literally into the real world and have consequences that you couldn't even imagine. Right. I mean, Brazil's a really extreme example, but you could say that the same thing happened in like America when because mm-hmm. none of them, none of the people involved had any experience in like transportation. Right. So they launch and parachute into something like New York. And I mean, yeah. taxi drivers are committing suicide and Uber drivers are committing suicide, too, when rates are slashed. It's yep. wild. No, I mean, I mean, the taxi thing was crazy. Like the the thing that I think the valley has this mindset around disruption and right. um, the idea that um, change and innovation is unilaterally positive, right? And I think my, probably like not just even in this book, but like a lot of my reporting for the past few years has been the effect of unintended consequences and what they can sort of have on people and the idea that we should start caring about those, you know, the uh, um, like, okay, maybe Uber has brought a lot of interesting or new or even good things to the world, right? Maybe maybe it is good that, um, you know, it's reduced uh, drunk driving a significant amount, which I think is actually true. Um, but at the same time, you know, the taxi industry has, the value of a medallion has, you know, gone from a million dollars to like uh, $100,000, right? Like a cut in te- into a tenth. And so someone who saved their entire life to buy this medallion is now, facing whatever bankruptcy or is he can't yeah. can't pay for his family to eat or whatever and then you know multiply that by as many cab drivers are in new york and and there started being like serious consequences including people just killing themselves you know so it it could be as dramatic as suicide or violence or as uh as small as like you know maybe traffic isn't which is still not that small maybe traffic has sort of increased to a crazy degree in the bay area it's like a nightmare like most of the cars on the road are uber and lyft because they come from all over the state not just the city and it's a lot of things that companies could not have foreseen until they operated in the real world right right yeah i think some of those definitely count as unintended consequences but I mean, given the guy at the helm and the way that you tell the story, I have to wonder, like, not paying drivers, not even paying yeah. people within the company enough money seems yeah. kind of intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they were definitely, I mean, Travis would sort of rationalize this. It was funny. Every time there was a rate cut um, for drivers, employees would get nervous because they knew they were going to hear from the drivers. But Travis had, like, a same sort of rote response, which is, the math works, the economics of it works. You just have to drive more to earn the same amount of money. So you work twice as hard to get the same amount of money. Like that just doesn't 
work. And if you had like any experience in labor law, you would know that does not work for like literally any <laughs> other area, right? Can you can you say that to like a McDonald's worker? Oh my God. Yeah, 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 right. <laughs> just serve twice as many burgers and then you'll totally be right, fine. Twice, I mean, we're just going to cut your wage in half yeah. tomorrow because you know the numbers. And that is, and that's the sort of grand innovation that these guys have thought up, which is just completely setting back worker protections and labor laws like years because Decades. of this yeah exactly because they've they've created this type of worker that works for them but doesn't really work for them you know like puts it all on them and that's that's probably one of the biggest intended consequences that some would argue would be very damaging to how workers operate now What's curious is that the U.S. backlash against Uber hasn't been the result of driver mistreatment or any of the violence that we talked about. People really started to delete Uber in droves, it seems, after ex-employee Susan Fowler's revelations about the culture of sexual harassment and even assault at the company, and especially after um, Uber's surge pricing during the JFK um, Muslim ban protests. Mm-hmm. I mean, what I think is so interesting is that Lyft is, you know, was held up in the aftermath of that as this virtuous competitor. Like, you don't see the CEO of Lyft in this tech conference with <laughs> Trump. But I mean, Lyft, <laughs> right, 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 right. They like Lyft was one of the companies that pushed Uber to move away from the black cab service initially. So they started the peer to peer stuff. Yep. And I mean, they're also participants in the gig economy. (laughs) (laughs) I think people need a hero and a villain in a story. And I think as much as like we might feel ethically or morally like against some tenets of how the gig economy works, I think at the end of the day, people are like, well, do I want to wait 30 minutes for this train to come or do I want to get a ride home real quick? Like a lot of the time it comes down to convenience, right? Mm -hmm. And so the dynamic of Uber versus Lyft and Uber being this scary villain, like right off the bat versus Lyft positioning itself very intentionally as like the kinder, gentler ride hailing service made it easier for people to go, okay, I can still use this, but I'm going to use the good one, not the bad one. When in reality, I do think Uber behaved far more underhanded than, than Lyft in a lot of different ways. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, Lyft, it's the same company, right? It's like the same service and they mm-hmm. still pay drivers, uh, you know, a pittance. The labor model is the same. It's just that they're colored pink and have mustaches on their cars. So, like, yeah, <laughs> I think if you are honest with yourself and take away the sort of PR spin, it's the same thing. Right. Well, I mean, speaking of the ethics, a big part of your book is the turn that happens in mm-hmm. response to Uber with people not only outside of the company turning on Uber, you know, 500,000 people and God knows how many other ones, like deleting Uber. Right. Um, but I mean, people also within the company turned on Uber. Yep. Do you think that they did it out of a genuine sense of ethics or because they wanted to protect their investments? I th- So I think there's two things. One, I think outwardly, um, I think the 2016 election was a real turning point just for how people view tech in general. And I think if it wasn't, um, for Uber, I think Facebook would have had its reckoning much earlier just mm. because I remember right after the election, there was this moment where folks were like looking towards tech to be like, how did this happen? You know, Uber stepped in and took the bullet for Facebook in the beginning because it was just sort of this other big target where everything about it is bad. Like Travis represents this bro capitalist Ayn Rand loving type guy who uh, who is just kind of slimy and and loves excess and ballin and they have this like 25 million dollar Beyonce fest in Las Vegas right like it's just every every part of 
tech that seemed bad was represented in Uber. And that's why I think they went after them first. And then internally, I think some people were caught off guard just because they didn't know the full extent of how bad the behavior was. And then some people were like mock pearl clutching. We need to change this, you know, basically because the world now found out about how bad things are, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's just really hard to believe that like a room full of executives who cheered on when a woman raped in an Uber didn't press legal charges (laughs) would suddenly like go on to have a real crisis of conscience. (laughs) No, you're exactly right. And like it's it was like PR 101 where it's like this does not this is not acceptable at Uber. We need to change this and we're going to call in these investigators and uh, some would argue that them calling in outside investigators was probably like the beginning of the downfall because you don't huh. really want to know all the skeletons in your closet, right. you know, especially if you operate in hundreds of cities around the world and hire bros that look and sound like you. And uh, there's probably much more dirt than you want to find out. Right. But no, I, I agree with you. I think if you're willing to cheer on the company and its tactics and everything when it's good and then only when it's bad, do you start like gasping uh i mean come on the like more cynical version would be like whatever it takes to to get these people to change it you know even if it's not real as long as they're trying to change it maybe that's a positive outcome but it's still hard to believe that they were all shocked yeah i mean do you think it has changed do you believe in uber (laughs) (laughs) 2.0 i don't know it's funny because i talked to different people about this um They've done so they spent like a half a billion dollars on marketing alone, just trying to say we're a different company and like putting Dara Khazrashahi, the new CEO, his face on like every commercial uh, at like prime time or like NBA games or whatever possible saying we are a new company. We're not bad anymore. Some people who were pushed out because of their bad behavior have been hired by Travis uh, at his new company, which says a lot in and of itself. I still think that company DNA is hard to change and Uber is always going to have some element of like boundary pushing or rule bending or whatever but it's it's much harder for them to do that in plain sight now just because they already have this stigma right and they they anytime Uber does something bad it's everyone's just like oh well it's Uber they're the scumbag company of course it's going to be them so I think they're probably on much better behavior and they're probably not going to have the same sort of hookers and blow uh, mentality, which was literally a part of at least some of the the offices. So I don't know. It's hard for me to say like it's a total 180, but I do think some parts of it have changed. Do you think that any of the people responsible for said bad behavior have really paid for it. I mean, because a lot of these people walked away millionaires and billionaires. I mean, Travis himself is now part of the three comma club. Um, but, you know, like, if I, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the only person who was punished for all of these legal violations is Anthony Lewandowski. Yeah. Right. I mean, and he was only punished for stealing information on self-driving cars from Google, his old tech company. Right. <laughs> right. That's exactly. So, that's the cynical ending, I guess. You know, like, look, Travis is a billionaire multiple times over. Uh, most of the execs at the top, even people who got pushed out, still made out with millions of dollars. They're trying to all sort of refashion themselves and, like, hire these very expensive PR operations to, to tell them what to do. And they're like, okay, first you got to say you're doing philanthropy, and then you got to sit on some of the boards of some of these companies. And to, like, everyone knows how to make their comeback, right? And... 
it's not like they're getting pushed out of polite society either. Travis is investing alongside of the Sequoias of the world or like other blue chip venture capital firms. So I also think people have a very short memory, right? But on the other hand, I want to say optimistically, like I've talked to some young startup founders and young, basically like 20 something young kids who are like, look, I don't want to build a company like Uber. I want to do something that's actually not terrible and think about it from the beginning and maybe try to improve the world in some way, but but just do so the right way. And, and look, I think if you can go into it with that sort of mentality, that's a little bit more hopeful than than just sort of uh, feeding your own ego and, and making a lot of money. I can't stress just how unexpectedly violent the story of Uber was. Some of the crimes were public. Some of the harassment and assault was public. But to see it all laid out in all of this detail all across the world was really tough. The cover of Super Pumped is drenched in blood red, and that's no accident. Mike Isaac's book reads more like a thriller, except it's not really clear by the end that the bad guy even got what he deserved. So for some real scares and no happy ending, read Super Pumped. You will not feel super pumped afterwards. And I guess that's appropriate for an episode coming out at the end of October. We'll be back next week with more spooky stuff and a special guest episode. Till then, take care and stay sharp. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.